When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Brian Hyde. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. Teenage angst has paid off well, and now Olivia Rodrigo is 20 years old, and she just dropped her excellent second album, Guts. To break down every track on that album, I have with me our own Angie Martosio, who just wrote a great Rolling Stone cover story on Olivia. Angie, how would you compare Guts with Olivia's debut? Does it live up to Sour? I think it does live up to Sour a lot. Sour was very one note at times. It was very much a breakup record, which she did not really intend on being. And I think Guts is very multi-layered and has a lot of depth to it that Sour does not. So I really do think she lived up to it and did not have a sophomore slump. Yeah, I think it's really good. I think we have the confidence to name it an instant classic. I don't think anything's an instant classic for me. I'm always slower to warm up to things. I'm hesitant to label anything that way so soon, but I think it's obviously really good. I still think Vampire is the best song, the first single. We did a whole segment talking about how great Vampire is. It's the most ambitious song on it. And I guess I was slightly disappointed that there's nothing as ambitious as Vampire, this sort of almost rock operatic thing. Every girl I ever talked to told me you were bad, bad news. You called them crazy. God, I hate the way I called them crazy too. You're so convincing. There's nothing like that. But she really leans into the rock thing from the first album. And that's exciting to me. I think Vampire is very Jim Steinman-esque. Like it almost could have been off Pat Out of Hell to me. And I think it was the perfect bridge from Sour. But I think we disagree on there because I think Teenage Dream is just as good, if not better. That's a great song, obviously. That's the closing song. Happy birthday to me. Got your whole life ahead of you. You're only 19. It really is like Billie Eilish is happier than ever. It's this really climactic ending and... I think it's also not what anyone expected. We see the track list and there's all these questions about Katy Perry and what it would sound like. And it's really just, to me, the entire thesis of the album, which is I'm getting older, what's going to happen to me when I'm no longer exciting? And in a way, it literally is just like Taylor Swift's Nothing New. There's a lot of comparisons that I I brought to that. Yeah, I, I think it's a really powerful song. And It's hard for anyone over 25 not to slightly resent someone being upset about turning 19 or 20. It's it's hard not to like laugh a little bit about I'll blow out the candles happy birthday to me. You got your whole life ahead of you. You're only 19 sung in a sad way. However, the next bit is really powerful, but I fear they already got all the best parts of me. So there's a lot going on there. I think it's devastating. And you could look at it in that way that you just said through this angle of she's incredibly lucky. She's 20 years old. Her life's going to have so many different directions and twists and turns. But when you really talk to her about the song, which I got to on our final interview, she really just said it was about her biggest fears of what's going to happen when I'm not this prodigy and I stop impressing people and I'm just I'm good and not great. 
And I think that's something that we can all relate to outside of our profession and just in general. It's important to mention that she, when she already looks at her album Sour and she talked to you, it seems like a million years ago to her. And she's saying that she, she, she wished she could have told herself that it gets much better. And some of it seems ridiculous. And I think probably, hopefully she'll be 25 and, and rolling her eyes about her angst over turning 19 or 20. But it does capture in the sort of present tense where her head's at. And that's what she's so powerful at doing as a songwriter. Absolutely. And when she was talking about Sour, she said, it obviously, it gets much better. But she literally also is mocking herself saying, girl, what are you crying about? And then even with our interview, literally as it's happening in real time, she's saying, I'm sure, and this wasn't in the story, but she does say, I'm sure a few years from now, I'll look back at this interview and be like, God, what was I saying? So she's, this speaks to really how wise Olivia can be for 20 years old. Like she's talking about making fun of herself and it hasn't even happened yet. And she just, she does not sound her age when you're talking to her. I think that's actually one of the paradoxes. Part of what makes her a really interesting artist is she has, and not to make the Taylor comparisons that might in fact make her uncomfortable at this point, but there's that thing that a lot of great songwriters have and Taylor included, Olivia included, where you can be fully emotionally in the place you're at while also having the ability to step aside and recognize the ironies and the ridiculousness and the tragedies of it all. And I think that's what she has. And there's also in your interview, there's moments when she comes off as super mature. And then there's moments when she comes off as definitely 20 years old. Yeah, you're right. It's definitely a a paradox. She's so sure about herself in so many ways. She said to me, I feel more comfortable talking to you and adults and doing interviews than I do talking to kids my own age. And then we'll also be sitting there and she's, so what's your death row meal? Like she's very stream of consciousness, like very young. I had to also remember that I was talking to a 20 year old because like you said, she's so on point and so knowledgeable about certain things. And then when it would come to a popular film, she's like, I don't even know what that is. And I had to remember like, oh, right, you were not alive when this came out. You talked about Moonstruck and that came out many years before her birth. Yeah. And on the one hand, it's Cher is extremely cool right now with Gen Z. And I get that. But it also wasn't that shocking that she wouldn't know this film. It's not. It's just I wasn't expecting her to. So I wanted to go track by track through the album, but it sounded like there really was a lot of stress on her part about the sophomore slump and follow-up. You described her uh, sitting at her piano and crying while trying to write this album. Yeah, people who are not as familiar with her music or just remember Driver's License kind of forget that she was not expecting to be this gigantic star. She just wanted to release an important song to her about a breakup in January of 2021 and then was completely caught off guard when it became a number one hit song. And instead of making an EP, Sour was supposed to originally be just a few songs. She wanted to expand it into an actual album, and that was never the plan. I think it was a lot for her to process. I think she's still processing it. Just the idea that she just wanted to release the song she wrote in her bedroom, and all of a sudden was this massive star, and now she has to follow that up. I think it's completely mind-boggling for anyone, but especially a 20-year-old. I guess what I was thinking as you said that was the complication is she already was within the rather specific milieu of Disney kids famous, which is weird. 
She was famous, but she wasn't like Hillary Duff level famous. And yeah, she had nothing near the caliber of a Lindsay Lohan. But she still, I think she really was well known, but not a household name the way she became. I mean, she was very real with me about how she felt during this whole process. And she did not sugarcoat the fact that she would start to make guts. She would walk into the studio with her producer, Dan Nigro. She would sit down at the piano and she would cry. And he would eventually tell her very gently, you know, you need to go home and rest. We, we can do this another time. Or it wasn't as um, emotional and they would just be eating hamburgers and dreading working on the album because it was such a huge undertaking. And that's a really hard thing to grapple with. And I think as more time passes, she can like step outside of this and she won't be so in it and she can see the album for what it is and that it's great. But I think at first she was really anxious about it. So Dan Nigro, who was this guy in a band as tall as lions, which I honestly was not super familiar with, wrote a bunch of songs actually for people over the years and then met up with Olivia Rodrigo. And really that pairing was so much more successful for him than anything he'd previously done. It really seems like a dream collaboration for both of them. What do we know about how that sort of collaboration works? From what I understand, and keep in mind, I was not able to talk to him, but I really do think that he takes her songs and shapes them. Something we should talk about is if you hear the original demo of Driver's License. And you probably with that brunette girl, the one I always thought about. She's so much... Or the video of her singing it and playing it on piano very early on. It's extremely similar to the final product. I really think now they have a more collaborative effort, but at first, I think he was just producing the song. People do tend to make assumptions, especially when there's a very young, quote-unquote, pop star, though that's a designation she resists, and an experienced songwriter-producer. They make sexist assumptions about who's doing what, but that uh, driver's license thing is an important clue that she's a real writer. Dan had worked with Sky Ferreira and Caroline Polachek previously, and I think the same thing goes for that. I think he's really good at providing insight and shaping songs, but I think he mostly, I think these women all write their own songs. Yeah, that's, if anything, he's co-writing, he's shaping. He does have a a co-writing credit, I think, on pretty much the whole album. Yeah, and I I think it's very clear that it's very collaborative. And they have, from what I really gathered during my time with Olivia, they're genuine friends. She's friends with his wife. She buys clothes for his one-year-old baby. And they seem to really have a great relationship. And I think what's most important is that what they went through together with Sour, she explained it to me very clearly. There's nobody else who can understand or relate to her experience more than he did because he was right there with her when she completely blew up. And I think what's interesting about her, and I, I think I've made this comparison before, is she grew up with her mom's rock tastes. And that seems to be such an important thing to her sort of musical makeup. It's her mom's rock taste. And then Lord and Lana Del Rey. These things are obvious ingredients. And Taylor, among other things, are, are the obvious ingredients in the sort of stew of her influences, I'd say. I think in the intensity of her music, I especially with Sour, Driver's License to me sounds a lot like Lord. But I think people spend so much time comparing her to other people. And it's like you said, she takes inspiration from all these little things. But to me, she doesn't really sound exactly like any one of them. 
No, but she definitely sings in cursive, like Lord and, and other people. She does that thing to her consonants. The kids call it singing cursive, which is a just absolute perfect uh, description of that thing she does, which Billie Eilish does too. It's just that generational singing thing that they all do. Oh, absolutely. You know Yes, yes. Um, and you also, like you said, her mom's rock taste is insane. The fact that she was waking up her alarm clock for a period of time when she was very young was a Babes in Toyland vinyl record. She had this fascination with Slater Kinney and Babes in Toyland and... We, we discussed Bratmobile. It was crazy. And then there's the whole other portion of it where she really loves the White Stripes. And talking to her about Jack White was really fascinating because I kind of had forgotten about how exciting all that stuff is when you're first getting into it. I'm not jaded in any way, but I just it's been years since I've really heard that stuff for the first time. And just the way she was talking to you about Elephant and stuff like that was fascinating. What we didn't know until your story is that she's also really into Rage Against the Machine right now. She's such a fan and she would drive every day home from the studio listening to them. And I think that kind of like excitement and rock and fervor that she's feeling is so palpable. And I'm really glad that younger people are getting into it. It's crazy. Bratmobile have 92,000 monthly listeners on Spotify and she has 60 million. So if she can spread the wealth, <laughs> that would be very nice. It's quite a contrast. It's weird. The She does a lot of this speak singing thing on this album and I forgot how much she also did it on Sour. It's actually the one of the first things you hear on Sour. I just noticed it more this time. I, I think she does a little bit more of it. But on the first song, the awesome song Brutal, that sounds, of course, just like Elvis Costello's Pump It Up on Sour. She does a lot of that speak sing thing. Secure, I think that I'll die before I drink. And I'm so caught up in the news of who likes me and who hates you. And I'm so tired that I might quit my job. I think it's more daring. A brutal, the song you just referenced, was very daring at first. I think that's what drew everybody in. That's one of my favorite songs on Sour. I think it's just one of her greatest songs. But I think this time around, she's doing the singing and talking thing. She's taking it up a notch. Bad Idea, which is the second song, it literally starts with her saying, I'm out right now and I'm all fucked up. And I think she wasn't holding anything back this time. And what I love about it is how funny it is. Fuck it, it's fine. Yes, I know that he's my ex, but can't do me what we I'm sure I've seen much hotter men, but I really can't remember when. She's very playful. She, the videos compliment this. She's having a great time. She's going out. She's with her friends. And I think there's a lot of humor in there that we miss because we're so focused on the whole bad idea right thing. No, it's hilarious. The whole my brain goes ah thing became a TikTok sound. I only see him as a friend. I just tripped and fell into his bed. So it's already here in her second album. She's finding a lighter way into all this stuff. It's not just, it's just not all like teen angst at all. It's pretty funny. It's hilarious, actually. And really, and I think it was released as, even though it's not like the most commercial song in the world, I think it was released as the second single because it makes a statement on how committed she is to this sort of rock thing. And it has so much energy and it sounds so young. So I totally understand why they released it as the second single. And furthermore, to piggyback on that, I understand why Get Him Back is so 
to me, they're almost like sister songs. Getting Back is definitely is definitely another variation of the theme of Bad Idea, right? What I like about it, it's a simple thing, but obviously Getting Back is a double entendre. It's two things. She wants to get him back, back in her life, and she also wants to get revenge on him, and it plays with both meanings. The difference between I want to get him back and Bad Idea, right, is it has a, that sort of teen girl pop rock sound of the OOC. It could be like a Kelly Clarkson song, or like I said, or Hilary Duff, or an Ashley Simpson song, or an Avril song. It has that exact vibe in the chorus. And what I even told her was the way that it's written is so brilliant, where I think my favorite line is, I want to key his car. I want to make him lunch. I want to meet his mom just to tell her her son sucks. Let's talk about track one, All American Bitch. So it's a quote from Slouching Towards Bethlehem. John Didion talks to a hippie runaway named Jeff. And Jeff says, my mother was just a genuine all-American bitch. So that's where that comes from. Jeff. It's not actually a Joan Didion quote. It's a Jeff quote. <laughs> yes, totally. I think it's, th- that song is incredible. I think it's a great way to kick off the album. When I hear all-American bitches, I do think of Avril. Avril Lavigne in a good way. That's interesting. I don't necessarily, not on this particular song. I, I heard it more on, on, the, on the chorus of Getting Back, actually. But interesting. It's a great way to introduce herself this time around. She's joking about being light as a feather. She says, I've got sun in my motherfucking pocket. So she's trying not to be whatever sad girl you thought she was. She's trying to tell you I'm reintroducing myself and I'm older and I'm having a good time. As on the first album, I also heard a lot of, I heard a lot of Alanis in this one. I, could, I also heard this, is, it could be, you know, Courtney Love could have written this, you know. I mean, I could imagine the entire, you know, I could imagine Lana, not the music, but the lyrics. Uh, you know, I think it's drawing on a lot of uh, the full canon here. But yeah, this sort of, this, the combination of these sort of like sarcastic descriptions of herself as perfect in this little sing-song baby doll voice contrasted with the really aggressive rocket is so 90s, ultimately. I think it's ultimately so 90s more even than Avril. I don't think Avril really was known for like sophisticated use of sarcasm or was really ever that personal. Sorry, Avril fans, but at least at the beginning, certainly on the first album, those songs were written for her. It doesn't surprise me that Olivia told you she loved Barbie because it has a little bit of some of the sort of critique of expectations for women that Barbie has as well. Yeah, expectations for American women as well. Just like you were touching on Lana, I feel like a lot of the imagery in All American Bitch, she's singing Coca-Cola bottles that I used to curl my hair. And I even asked her, like, did you do that? And she was like, oh, no, it just seems very American. I got class and integrity, just like a goddamn Kennedy, actually. She, I, I presume she wrote that before the RFK Jr. campaign. But we digress. But yeah, but this idea that the viciously sarcastic, I'm always grateful just the ridiculous expectations that she faces, which she comes back to on the album. There's nothing new about these sentiments, and there's nothing new about the music either. But what's new about it is it's coming from her with her own unique perspective on it, and it's coming in a way where it feels fresh. There's people complaining that this all sounds familiar, but it's not going to be familiar to her young fans, and it doesn't. And it's okay that it draws on things. I think it makes it all the better. Absolutely. I'm not going to reduce her to just sounding like, you know, No Doubt and Avril Lavigne and Courtney Love, because I think that's not... I, I want younger kids to experience her in this fresh way and get into rock and have this kind of like feminine energy that's not really represented 
as much like this, like the rock portion. I hate to be the person that's like rock is back, but it really is refreshing to have some sort of rock songs come back from Olivia and have her like presented in this way. There's no doubt that we've talked about it on the pod in various contexts that guitars have quietly made it back to the radio and to pop music in all sorts of contexts. If you look at the new Tizo Touchdown album, he's coming from a very different place, but there's all sorts of rock guitars on that. It's pretty interesting. And I think that Olivia was a big reason why Billie Eilish's last album suddenly got so rocky. But as far as people using the obvious influences to dismiss it, I mean, it might sound insane to every 11-year-old on earth who's now wearing a Nirvana t-shirt, but there was a time when Nirvana, the snobbiest of snobs, found them very derivative and, and said they were just a Pixies ripoff and they've heard this before. That's just how it goes. Speaking of them, she does love the quiet loud. And I love that she's taken that on and carried that torch. Totally. This, this, this album is it's all over. The quiet loud is. Uh, and yeah, All yeah. American Bitch is quintessential quiet loud. So we talked about bad idea, right? I guess the only thing worth noting about Vampire is you, to me, it's obviously about this one sort of club promoter dude that she publicly dated. And you directly asked her about him and whether it's about him and, and she no commented you which is a as close as a confirmation as one would probably get yeah and she was for someone who's saying no comment you can't even see her expression there but she was completely fine and happy to answer it and was almost expecting it and she, i think she's it's hard to write an album like sour too that's this honest and straightforward and not expect to be asked about all of these songs and the way she's been in this cycle and all these interviews yeah and Look, I think even Taylor is still learning how to deal with when you write a song that's obviously about somebody, but you don't quite want to say it. That's a tricky line to walk. Even when you're like Taylor and you've been doing it for years, you want everyone to know what it's about, but you don't want to say it. And that's a weird line to walk. Um, And you also want to create something and not think about its reception and who is going to ask questions about it, because then that will cloud over that and that takes away your creativity. I think Olivia spoke about this with Phoebe Bridgers in Interview Mac. That's a good point. You have to get into that blind place of creating and not worrying how the world's going to take it. And then you deal with it after as awkward as it sometimes seems to be. And it does Mm -hmm. often seem awkward, which leads us to the next song, track four, Lacey. Now, this is there's, there's a thing to describe it as neutrally as possible. And this is apparently not what the song is about, but something seems to have happened between Olivia and Taylor Swift. And the reason we know this is she used to post really enthusiastically about loving Taylor Swift and listening to Taylor Swift. And at some point during the release of Sour, that stopped. That's all factual. We know it stopped. We don't exactly know why. And the other thing we know is that, I guess there were two songs, right, that when the album was released did not have Taylor Swift song credits in the sense that she may have borrowed a bit musically from them. And then within months after the album's release, suddenly they did. Would you agree with the facts as I have stated them here? I I would. And also, uh, it's worth noting that on my very last interview with Olivia, I asked for a simple breakdown of these events. And she was very clear that it was through her team and she had nothing to do with it, quote unquote. You're talking about the, uh, the song credits thing, yeah. Yes, the song credits. And it was obviously after the album came out. And... I I have a really hard time figuring this out. There's so much ambiguity about it. But what you are saying is factual, that it was after the album and they ceased communication, at least from what we can tell on social media. Paradoxically, I bring that up for the song Lacey because some observers thought 
that Lacey is about Taylor Swift, but we were talking beforehand that there's strong evidence lyrically perhaps that it is not about Taylor Swift and is in fact about Sabrina Carpenter, who was the third person in the love triangle that she wrote about so eloquently on Sour. We'll never really be able to tell. And Olivia is fascinated with You're So Vain and that Carly Simon has never exactly revealed every single inspiration on there. And I think she will take this to her grave. But I can see cases for both. The Bardot reincarnate line we were discussing earlier could definitely be more Sabrina Carpenter to me. But the thing that's worth noting is that regardless of who it's about, it's not necessarily a negative song, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The end sounds pretty negative. Lacey, oh, Lacey, it's like you're out to get me. You poison every little thing that I do. Lacey, oh, Lacey, I just love you lately. That sounds pretty negative. I think it's about someone that she's entranced with and has come to hate pretty clearly. Sabrina Carpenter has her own pop career, is in fact opening for Taylor Swift, another sign of perhaps not the best relations between these two camps because Sabrina is famously Olivia's romantic nemesis, as ridiculous as it seems for us to be delving into the love life of, of these Teenage 20-year-olds. And it, it's, it is unfortunately part of pop culture, and so that that is the fact. Uh, Sabrina was Olivia's romantic nemesis, apparently, and having her open for her is not, I think it's fair to say, and I'm just trying to be as neutral and factual an observer as I can be on these topics. I think it's fair to say it's not a gesture of friendship. It implies that perhaps a lack of closeness between these two camps. This song is one of two songs that you, interestingly, were not allowed to hear before you wrote your story, perhaps because it raises a lot of questions about who it's about. And she doesn't really want to answer those questions. It's a good song beyond who it's about. Yeah, definitely. And I think the specificity really is probably why I was not given this song. Because <laughs> if I had to ask directly about Zach Via with Vampire, I'm 100% certain that a bunch of journalists would have asked point blank about Lacey and the other song, which is The Grudge. But it's a very pretty ballad. The music actually feels Lacey with these very fluttery harmonies. It's also, a pretty with a bite I mean, to it. Pretty with a bite, saying that someone's skin is like puff, a puff pastry. Is, could be perceived in two different ways, and I think that definitely is part of the song's beauty. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast. 
part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Let's talk about the next track, Ballad of a Homeschooled Girl. Musically, it really sounds like the Breeders or something. Yeah, and I, I think there's a reason why it's like almost in the middle of the record. It's really just from an anxiety thing, like you missed out on an upbringing. But what I saw more of was, A, it's a really fun song to dance to. It's another great upbeat rocker. And then also with the lyrics, it's like it's coming from this weird place of insecurity and doubting herself and not fitting in your clothes and a, a ton of 20-year-old topics. And the whole thing is just a litany of awkward moments. She talks about Googling how to start a conversation. I also really respect that she was very open about the fact that she had been listening to Ballad of the Thin Man and wanted her own song like that, only in the title, of course. <laughs> yeah, I don't hear a lot of other resemblance. The subject matter is super refreshing, and it does go back to that thing of she listened to Royals by Lord and realized you can write songs about all sorts of things. And it doesn't just have to be about love. It doesn't have to be just about the club. It's very 90s, even in its sort of teenage dirtbag-esque lyrics, too. It's, <laughs> it's Her whole thing is it's really familiar and really refreshing at the same time. I think that's a perfect way to say it, yeah. So she was homeschooled? She says she was homeschooled and then told me it was a set school, it was on set. So I'm pretty sure the way she explained it was that like it was a mixture of being on set and that her mom, who was a teacher was teaching her. There's this underrated show on Netflix called Love. It was co-created by Judd I Apatow. Love, love. Paul Russ's character, Gus, his job was being an onset tutor to a really spoiled child actor. So I just assume, I just picture it like that. No, I, I definitely picture it like that. And I could do an entire episode on that show because it ended way too soon and was my favorite. But basically you believe it. You believe that she actually feels socially awkward. This isn't her putting on a pose to seem relatable. No, I, and I experienced her mannerisms and she's, like I said, she told me I'm more comfortable talking to adults and doing interviews. But even in that socially, she can be pretty seemingly nervous. She would preface a lot of things in pop culture with, I'm sure you know more than I do, or maybe I'm getting this wrong, but, and I could tell that it's, it, there's at least a percentage of that's very true. And I don't think she's, it's calculated or anything like that. She's, listen, whether you're on set or literally being homeschooled, you're missing out on an ordinary childhood. You're in this bubble. And so I think that's what we're, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. And Making the Bed reminds me a lot of the sort of like power ballads on the last Billie Eilish album. It definitely has that vibe to me, which is ironic because they felt influenced by Olivia to me. So it's a weird circular thing. weird circular thing and also it really reminds me of Hole's Miss World at least of the I made my bed I lie in it and mm. she's using the bed as like the, the main focal point of the song and she said she hadn't even thought about that but my first time hearing it that's exactly what I thought about she got her driver's license but she in this one she has a dream of driving and her brakes go out it's her never ending muse is her car she is admitting to underage drinking on this song and she was a little hesitant to put that stuff in right she was. She was just jokingly whispering into my recorder, like, I don't really drink and laughing. And I liked the fact that she put that in there, especially in this track, because 
it normalizes her and she's not trying to sugarcoat who she is and she says that too about her role models and she also said if that's the worst that i'm doing pretty well and i have to agree and logical track seven is is a straight ahead ballad and now you got me thinking two plus two equals five and i'm the love of your life i don't know if it's my favorite song on the album i I think some people love it some people are mad about it Where, where do you sit not to bring up another person i'm comparing it to but i did ask her if she's ever heard radiohead's two plus two equals five and she has not I think it's great. It's a nice ballad. It's not my favorite either, but I don't see anything. It's definitely something I like to play a lot more on this record. It's it's great. Uh, so we talked about Get Him Back. Number nine, Love is Embarrassing, has like a Go-Go's vibe. Yeah, she basically says, I'm going to start World War Three and... I'm planning out my wedding with some guy I'm never marrying, which I think is a very important set of lyrics that describes a lot of her personality, which is that she spends so much time thinking about her future and who she will marry and have children with. And I think there's a hint of like seriousness in this. She's so obsessed with that whole thing. It's just a full on pop rock song. And I'd love to know a little bit more about because one thing that Dan is really good at is capturing this vibe of it sounds like a live band playing, but a little more polished in that. 2023 way where it probably isn't really a live band playing, but you're not sure. And that's a really interesting kind of balance. I'd love to know exactly what it does here, but this is going to, basically it's going to be great live. So if you listen to Good For You, the the big sort of rock is back hit on the last album, great song. There's a lot of sort of concessions to it. It breaks down into sort of electronic percussion. It's not just start to finish a straight ahead rock song, but this one, for example, is. It's really just a rock song. It's sleeked up production wise, but other than that, it's just a straight ahead rock song. And it's something that maybe... She paved her own way that could seem that could make sense on a big mainstream album. It's interesting. It's interesting to hear what the this sort of Overton window of what's acceptable in a mainstream album essentially made for teens is in 2023. And that's she deserves a lot of credit for kind of opening the the door to that. Yeah, it's concise and it's very 80s to me. And she I especially love there, there's no bridge, but she does say I give up everything and goes like 10 octaves higher. And I think it's incredible. I would do it, but I can't hit that note anymore. But yeah, I think that's that part is so fun. And it's definitely just like a complete, it really does have like a go-go's vibe. So that brings us to track 10, The Grudge. I voice every time that I think I'm not enough. And I try to be tough, but I want to scream. How could anybody do the things you Now, this by, by popper consensus, people think this is perhaps about whatever happened between her and Taylor that that caused some kind of split between them. And it's not like they were ever best friends or possibly even friends, but it seems possible. And she drops that thing. She does that thing that a lot of modern songwriters do so cleverly, a very specific reference that raises eyebrows. I have nightmares each week about that Friday in May when one phone call from you and my entire world was changed. And of course, if it was Taylor, whoever it is, you're like, oh, what, what happened in the phone call? And for the record, you asked her, again, you had not been allowed to hear this song, intriguingly, but you asked her about the rumors that there was beef between her and Taylor. And she said, I don't have beef with anybody. Yeah, she was sipping on some Italian wedding soup and was very instantly quiet, but also not surprised that I had to ask this. And 
keep in mind, as you said, I did not even know the song existed when I was asking those questions. And it's there's a clear reason why I was not given this song in advance. But I, th- I think there's also like a huge Phoebe Bridgers influence on here. It's very motion sickness to me. You know, you gave me 1500 and all of that to see your hypnotherapist. I think it's exact phrasing and time and day and all these details that are so packed in. And I think a lot of that does come from Phoebe, who she is friends with. But I think it's she's never going to admit it's about Taylor. And I think that's okay. But it clearly is. It could be partly about Taylor. It could not be about her at all. I don't know. It's a good song, regardless. You can't say she's milking this or anything. It's not like she's going around saying that she said she claims there is no beef. I guess it comes down to how does one define beef? (laughs) And when you asked her specifically about Taylor, she said something like they only met once or they only talked once. We only met once and that was it. It was very specific verbatim like that was it. Yeah, it's, it's not like it's even the first time Taylor's had songs written about her. She's written songs about many people. It's just, it is what it is. I, I think it's, it's also, it's interesting Katy Perry and Taylor are cool now, but it is interesting that it's Katy, one of the things we learned from your story is that Katy is mentoring her at this point. Yeah, that's like the big piece of it, of the lore of this, is that you mentioned that Taylor has Sabrina Carpenter opening for her on the Eras tour. And Katie jumps on the phone with me to just discuss how much she loves Olivia. And it's just, it's really hard not to have these stands put together theories and conspiracies based on this information. And yeah, it is a little weird. It is interesting that Olivia is someone who's seen as a pop star, but wants to be seen as a singer-songwriter. And in some ways, Taylor was somebody who was seen as a singer-songwriter who wanted to, and of course became basically the biggest pop star in the world. So that, that's also an interesting contrast. I don't know what to make of that. That is interesting. And Olivia cited the very first article she read that described her as a pop star, and she was genuinely shocked and just wanted to be seen as someone who gets to like write and record and I actually hadn't put that together. That's really interesting. One thing that's also interesting to me is in another era, it feels like she would be in a band. She would just she'd be the front woman of a band. But it's just that's just not. I, that's why I always say it's not rock that's dead. It's in the mainstream. It's it's rock bands. And where's her band? She's got some kind of backup band. It, it just would probably never occur to her in a million years to have formed a band that wasn't called Olivia Rodrigo. No, totally. And her band members, I will say, are all women and they're all very cool and she loves them. And I think she could form a band with them if she wanted to, but it's not that time. It's just not how people think now. That's what I tried to tell. We had Noel Gallagher on this podcast and he has his very funny and silly thing, hating the idea of collaborating that yes. that stars get people to collaborate with. And, and I said to him, think of it, which is also silly because he, he just wrote a bunch of songs for the Black Keys doing the, with the <laughs> Black Keys doing the exact same thing he supposedly hates. You know, I said, can't you think of it as just when Taylor works with Jack Antonoff, it's like for that time, it's like she's in a band with Jack Antonoff or when Olivia works with Dan Nigro, it's like she's in a band with Dan Nigro. The artist, Billy Eilish, is a band with Phineas or actually much more so than those other examples that Billy Eilish really is a band with Phineas. That's how that works. They are a duo really? who perform as Billy Eilish, which is really interesting. And it's not quite that way with Olivia, but it is if... Her band is in the studio, is Dan. And that's really interesting. It's just a different way. And it's just also facilitated by modern technology. You don't, you can much more easily, even a rock sounding song, you can make much more easily now without an actual band. I'm saying the obvious here, but it's just interesting to think of uh, it's our, our rockiest person in a long time and there's no band. That's just interesting to me. It's very interesting. And like you said, with Love is Embarrassing, that is her rock band song with Dan. 
So that brings us to Pretty Isn't Pretty, the opening of which sounds like a cross between The Cure and Smashing Pumpkins' 1979. I literally told her that more of The Cure. And I said, this literally sounds like The Cure. And she was very flattered. This one was co-written with Amy Allen. And I think it's the only one that's not just her and Dan, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, it's very much that same theme of I'm not good enough. I'm not thin enough. And what do I do? And pretty isn't pretty enough. To me, it's similar to the sour song of I hope you're okay because it's like Mm. the outlier it's a little bit different and that's great it makes it more well-rounded and I hope it's not overlooked because it's a really good one it does the whole thing has that sort of like dream pop feel to it I could change up my body change up my face I want to change my clothes my hair my face you know what's funny is what uh, the tiktok (laughs) kids say about dancing in the dark is it's so girl coded (laughs) that's that's true they say it's so teen girl coded and they're actually right I think this proves that they're right about that Um, yeah there's a reason why like Lucy Dacus and like a million other young female songwriters are gravitating towards that song this is a great song about the social pressures of of being a young woman i started to skip lunch stopped eating cake on on birthdays bought a new prescription to try to stay calm there's always something in the mirror that i think looks wrong i mean have we heard these sentiments before in in movies and books and pop culture of course but she expresses them so beautifully and again makes them feel like it's the first time you're hearing it right Yeah, absolutely. And she's very clear to say that it wasn't even autobiographical. She wanted to just write a song about girlhood. And I think a lot of that was the co-writer, too, that brought those ideas of the prescriptions and not eating. And it's, you know, this is like the main point of this episode, I think, is that she is reintroducing these things and she's not necessarily copying it and she's making it seem fresh and new. And it's exciting. And this could I could see this one as a single, actually. Yeah, it's great. So we talked a little bit about Teenage Dream, which you think is the best song on the album we started out. So we'll bring it full circle. You just believe every word of it. Yeah. And even me in my 30s, I got it. I get it. And also, it's really that complete crazy breakdown in the second half. That's why it's so good. And it really hits the way it does. And that's where I believe it. It gets better, but what if I don't? And just that refrain over and over, it's like the perfect culmination of the record. And yeah, I can't say I resent her. I get it. She was just really honest about the title and Katy Perry. And she's like, it's not going to come up first on Spotify. We thought about it. <laughs> she, I love that she says that, like, it's been discussed. She wants us to know it's been discussed. And she did it anyway. She bravely overlooked the SEO issues of the title and, and went on with the, with her art. Anything else about her as an artist that you didn't expect? I knew she liked music, but I didn't know the level of nerdiness that she has and knowledge of rock. And I loved that. I'm never going to bring up Bob Dylan, but I love when people do, especially younger artists. And she told me that she rides the like, plane rides or Blood on the Tracks is her album. And she's really into Planet Waves. And she has so much more to discover and she's not done yet. And she's, she's just so eager to learn more. And 
That was the best part was like, I didn't even bring any of this up. She was bringing it up to me. She has a, a strong passion for one of Bob Dylan's most thoroughly mediocre albums, Planet Waves. Good for her. I, she said, what's yeah. it called? She had to Google it. Oh, Planet Waves. And I was like, oh. That's very random. I think even Bob Dylan would be surprised to hear that. And she did tell you that she would like to write a song as good as If You See Her Say Hello, which wouldn't everyone, yeah. Yeah, she is completely absorbing all of these things for the first time. In Hawaii on her recent trip, she was listening to Big Yellow Taxi the whole time. She just discovered Joni Mitchell. She's learning all of this stuff. And she was, it's this thing with this generation, I think Gen Z, like they're not ashamed to admit that they're discovering something for the first time or that they're new to an artist. And I think that's really cool. I thought it was really interesting. She did face this thing. She does wear her influences on her sleeve and especially did on the first album, obviously. And there were people who, it sure seems like demanded song credit, including Haley Williams from Paramore. However blatant people think some of the borrowings were on that album, the opening track, Brutal, is literally her writing a new song over Pump It Up. I, of course, when I first heard that, I was completely delighted, but it's not that different from when someone samples something really obscure that you love and the world's getting to hear it in a big way. Not that Pump It Up is obscure, but it is obscure to Gen Z. So to have basically that the exact sound of Pump It Up is somehow cool enough to be on this cool young album was absolutely hilarious to me. So I loved it and Elvis Costello loved it. But all this to say is you asked her a very clever question is when she's older, would she make someone add songwriting credits for borrowing from her? And she was like, no, which is really interesting. She said no. And what I left out in that was I, I spent a few minutes talking about Tom Petty and the Strokes and how, you know, Tom famously had this very chill reaction towards having ever influenced anyone. He would just say, good for them. And that's what we were talking about is do you take on this stance and say, I'm so happy for them and it's genuinely a good thing? Or do you go after credits? That said, there may be someone who's being called the hot young new her who has a song that sounds way too much like driver's license and it's going to drive her fucking nuts. Let's be honest. She may find reason. It's easy to say now, but she may find reason to be annoyed by it someday. Yeah. And it's like we said, I'm sure she will eventually feel that way when something comes out. And she was discussing in real time during the interview, maybe I will regret all of this stuff. <laughs> so it's pretty great. Angie, thank you for joining us. Hey, this was so much fun. Thank you. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.